0: been captured for us this apocalyptic literature is called and when we read it we've got to be careful that we don't lean in too close to it because what we'll do is we'll get confused or fixated on these things this symbolic imagery what is happening is it's drawing back the curtain for us in order that we can get a glimpse of what's going on behind the scene, what God is doing throughout the world. And as we approach this particular chapter in Revelation 12, what we glimpse as as the veil is pulled back for us is this huge conflict that has been going on between God and the devil. History is portrayed by John as this great battle, both a visible battle on things uh, 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 it, that happened on the earth and also an invisible battle, things that, uh, a battle that spans from heaven all the way down to earth and a battle, a conflict that involves every every person, a conflict between God and Satan. Now the drama of chapter 12 is captured for us. There's kind of three different camera angles here that we're gonna look at this morning and predominantly three main characters. Did you get them? The woman, the child, and this great red dragon. Now, with the dark dragon, there's little doubt as to who we're talking about. If you look down at verse nine, you'll see the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. The dragon, when we hear the dragon, we think this is the devil. And if we go back to verse three, we'll read that um, this enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its head. Here's a little challenge for you. Try drawing that picture later when you're having lunch. Draw a picture of a dragon that's got seven heads and 10 horns. And uh, it's weird, isn't it? Share it on your life group uh, and we'll have a little bit of a laugh at how you uh, how you get on. But you see, in Revelation, these symbols, they mean stuff. And so do the numbers that are attached to them. And with this imagery we get of the dragon, what he's claiming with the horns, which symbolize power and the crowns, which symbolize sovereignty. He is falsely claiming the dragon that he is in control, that he is the one who is all powerful and all knowing something that is reserved only for God. It's imagery that comes back from uh, from Daniel's chapter seven, which we looked at a couple of years ago together as a church. So we know who the dragon is. and um, what about the, the the child? Again, there's little room for interpretation here. In verse five, she gives birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, who was snatched up to heaven, uh, to God and to his throne. When we read the child, we know that it's talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. But who is this pregnant woman? You see, if we read this really closely and literally, We could think, well, a baby's mother, well, that's going to be Mary then. If Jesus is the baby, then Mary must be the mother. But you see, we have to take a step back and look at what is it, it, it look at the whole story here. Uh, Verse one a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. This is referring, it's symbolic of the people of Israel from Genesis 37, going back to that dream that Joseph had. Or in verse 2, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. These words mirror what was written in Isaiah, captured by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 26, all pointing to the fact that this woman is in fact This The the people of God, the the church, both of the Old Testament, the, the, the nation of Israel, and also the New Testament, us, believers, people who trust in Jesus now. So there we got it, the dragon, the child and the woman. We know who the key characters are in the drama now. So how does it unfold? Come with me then and read first the dragon denied in the first six verses of the passage. Let me start in verse three. Another sign appeared in heaven, this enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. Now, uh, it was great to hear from uh, Gerwin and Lydia this morning, This uh, these new Parents, uh, and there's loads of old parents in the uh, in the church as well who deserve a massive high five that you're still going uh, all those nappies later. I've got loads of grey hairs that I didn't have before I had children. And we've got some parents to be, uh, Mary uh, and Aled, and then Jenny and Andreas too, looking forward to that precious moment when the baby arrives, right? And I don't know if you think about it in your head, that perfect moment. Where the baby kind of you're given this child and you look at them for the first time, it's amazing, right? It's an amazing thing. But a little spoiler alert, um, having had three kids now, childbirth is pretty gross as well. <laughs> There's all sorts of things going on, blood and guts, it's the full works. But I can tell you, it it might not be exactly what you expect, but I can. Guarantee that every parent would not expect a giant red dragon to be stood at the bottom of the bed when your baby arrives. And yet that's the image that we've got here. A dragon stood there waiting with one aim, what is it, to destroy the child. On a historical level, we need to get this. We need to understand the malice with which this dragon acts, the rage that he has towards Jesus, his supreme opponent, as Satan thinks, I'm going to devour, I'm going to kill this child. Now, if we go back through the Old Testament, we can see again and again the attempts of um, the, the dragon to cut the line of Abraham from which the Messiah will come we see it uh, with pharaoh back in exodus where he sought to destroy uh, the israelite children we see it uh, uh, the, the nation of israel attacked constantly throughout the whole te- uh, throughout the old testament even up to the point when jesus himself was born and we see king herod again seeking to kill them off asking the wise men to report back where Jesus is so that he could go and destroy them. Yet, it's manifested in lots of different ways. But beneath it all, what Revelation 12 is telling us is that the rage and anger of the dragon is behind it all. And it continued during Jesus's life. We could think about Mark three, when um, the Pharisees plot with the Herodians about how they might kill Jesus. We could go to Mark 15, where we hear the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him, right up to that point where this conflict between God and the devil reached its climax, where where the dragon would have licked his lips as Jesus hung on that cross, thinking, I've got him. My plan to destroy the child is finally complete. That moment as Jesus breathed his last breath but the thing is jesus didn't stay dead did he he rose again 3 days later he defeated death death can't even hold him we read in verse 5 that he was snatched up to god and to his throne referring to when jesus rose again and ascended into heaven the the devil's greatest weapon death was made a spectacle Of at the cross, as Jesus hung there bearing the punishment for sin, the punishment of sin is death. Jesus bore that punishment, but far from being destroyed by the dragon, actually, what happened was Jesus's work was completed at the cross, and his resurrection just confirms it. So, the the attempts of Satan to destroy the child they'd failed, the dragon had been denied, right? And the woman, the church. fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Quick lay-by here, 1,260 days is a very specific number, and numbers are really important in the book of Revelation. We're going to hopefully pick this up in the podcast a little bit later uh, this week, but I think for now it, it would be helpful for us to grasp that When we hear 1260 days, when we hear um, three and a half years, what we're talking about is this second half of history, the the period between Jesus's first coming and his second coming, the the kind of the time that we exist in now. And what it says is the church is in the wilderness, in a place where God has prepared for them. And so we get this imagery uh, from the Old Testament, that we're in a place that's not permanent. We're currently in a place that God has provided for us and one where we will need to depend on him. So we've seen it first, then the dragon is denied. Secondly, then come with me, look at the second part. Uh, The dragon is defeated. Verse seven, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient snake called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So we see this big angelic struggle going on between Michael, the angel, and this dragon. And we need to be careful here. We're not talking about um, a another event or a a chronological, it's not chronological order. What we're doing here is getting a glimpse of what's going on in heaven as Jesus is dying on the cross and being raised to life and all that. And what we see is that the dragon is being defeated. There's no longer a place for him in heaven anymore. He's been thrown down, thrown down to the earth with his angels too. There's a great um, sculpture. Uh, Dave's got a slide for us that he's going to share now. A great sculpture outside Coventry Cathedral, if you're familiar with it. And there he is, Michael, the angel Michael, hurling uh, the dragon right out of heaven. You can just about make out his horns there uh, uh, as the dragon and Michael towering over him as he does. This um, dragon, the one who leads the whole world astray, the accuser of his brothers, has been thrown down. And it might be worth us just taking a minute here to zoom in on the way in which the the dragon is being described. Did you see it? The deceiver or the the one who leads the world astray? Deceiver it uses in the ESV or the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Do we understand what the devil has been up to all this time? Regardless of whether we're a Christian or not here this morning, we really need to grab this. The devil is the deceiver. We get that right back from the start of the Bible where we hear him whisper those words of doubt into um, Eve's ear. Did God really say you can't eat the the fruit of the tree? His second words being a complete fabrication. Surely you will not die, he says. He is a deceiver, the one who leads leads the world astray with these quiet whispers of deceit. And he, can you think for yourself of any of those whispers that you've experienced personally? God's not real. This is all a bunch of rubbish. Nah, you're okay. You can do it yourself. We know it, don't we? We know those lies, those whispers of deceit that have been whispered into our ears. There's a great film, uh, The Usual Suspects. And there's a line from it that says the devil's greatest trick was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. A lie He does exist. And yet we all fall for these little whispers of deceit. He's also the accuser. If we think back to before Jesus's birth, the devil would have been coming and going and accusing God's people, almost holding up, All their um, failings of the law and holding God to deal with it, to bring about his judgment on these people. Can you imagine if we had lived in that moment, what the devil would be saying about us? What would he be saying as he can see into the uh, the actions of our lives, to the, the thoughts of our heads? What would he be reporting? Think of the guilt that we would feel as he points out the way in which we talk about each other. Or the shame we might feel as he reveals the actual lusts of our heart. The hopelessness that we would feel as he points out how far short our lives actually are of what God wants for them. This is what the dragon has been doing, accusing the brothers and sisters And if we're honest, if we had stood then before God, every single one of them would be true, wouldn't they? The devil's arrows of accusation, they would land, they would hit, they would hammer nails into our coffin, every single one of them. But the thing is, friends, for us now, the child has been born. You see, when Jesus arrived, that lamb of God, he took those nails which should be hammered into our coffin. And instead, he hammered them into his hands and his feet as he hung on that cross for you and for me. He died there in order to take the punishment for all those things. This great substitution took place where all of our sin and wrongdoing and failing was taken by Jesus on the cross. And instead, he gave us back his robes of righteousness. We stand completely righteous before a holy God. And Satan is left silenced because Jesus has interceded for us. This is it. And friends, we need to get this loud and clear. The reason why I take time to to talk about that this morning It is because when we strip it back, this is the most fundamental thing that we need to answer. Whether we are a Christian or not here this morning, the only thing that matters is where am I putting my trust? Do I trust in Jesus's death for me? When Jesus hung on that cross, as I see him hanging there, do I think that my sin is on his shoulders? My failings are on his shoulders, on his account. If I say no to that question, if if my answer to that question is no, then friends, we still stand accused. The devil's, the dragon's accusations, they still stand. But if we answer yes, if we do trust that Jesus died for me, then we are free, spotless, righteous, righteous. And there is absolutely nothing that could ever change that. No whispers of deceit, no uh, accusations of anything will ever change the fact that you are saved for eternity. Paul captures this brilliantly in Romans chapter eight. He says this, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor present or future any powers height or depth anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord this is scandalous friends as we stand before a righteous judge a sinner like me we stand there spotless It's no wonder that the heavens cry out in song in verse 10. I heard a loud voice, which is a plural word. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of our Messiah. For the lamb has won. He has defeated this great enemy. As he died on the cross, it was all complete. If we bring that picture back up of Coventry Cathedral, We'd make a mistake to think that it was all about Michael's strength uh, that, that overpowered um, the, uh, the dragon at that point. If we've got the second slide there, Dave, you can just about make out that in its context. The sculpture on the entrance to, um, to Coventry Cathedral, there. there's Michael stood over uh, the dragon, but look at what they are stood in the shadow, shadow of, the cross. At the cross, the lamb has won. The dragon has been truly defeated. That's where the verdict took place. And actually, Michael is almost like the bailiff who's carrying out the orders of the court. Uh, he's the, the judge is saying, get that prosecution out of here. Get them out because they have been silenced. There is nothing that, ha- that is, is, is wrong because Christ has won it all. So that we've seen the dragon has been defeated. um, We've seen the dragon has been denied. And now finally and briefly, as we finish, let's have a look at the dragon not yet destroyed. When I think back uh, to my rugby play-in days, um, there was this, uh, at the end of a season, uh, you'd often come across this type of match where a team who had Um, already been promoted they'd got enough points that they they'd been promoted into the league above played against a team that had already been um, relegated normally happens at the end of the year at the end of the season and so actually the kind of the result was irrelevant those two teams they knew where they were going and so the result didn't matter and you'd think that those matches would be played in really good spirit that you know uh, that it would be like the type of thing where youngsters in the team might get an opportunity to play or teams would try out new things. But my experience of those type of games actually was that they turned really ugly. They were far more ugly than just a normal game because the team that had been relegated sought to kind of vent its furious anger at going being relegated on the team who'd won. They'd, they'd want to smash holes in each other. They would be hits off the ball, they'd be fighting, they'd be biting and gouging. It really got messy in the experience that I had. And that's similar to the situation that we've got here. The dragon has been defeated. We know that he's been thrown out of heaven. And we read in verse 12, therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. The the devil, the dragon's been defeated, but woe to the earth and the sea, Because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Uh, From what I read and what I understand, Hitler went through a similar situation after the D-Day landings. When the D-Day landings happened in World War II, you would expect him to have rolled over, to have seen that defeat was inevitable. But actually, the most vicious and most atrocious fighting of World War II happened after Uh, the the D.D. landings had took place as Hitler desperately tried to cling on to power and and wasted kind of so many soldiers lives in trying to do so. We got the same thing here in verse 13 with the dragon. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, far from rolling over and accepting defeat, accepting the fact that he knew his place, no, the dragon is furious. He knows his time is short, and when he saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Or come down to verse 17 with me, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. The devil knows that he cannot defeat the child, he cannot destroy the child. And so what does he do? He now turns his attention on the church that's us. The dragon's fury is now focused on us. John Stott says, as Christians, we really must take the devil seriously. He is no laughing matter. He's far more powerful than we are. He's been defeated, yes, but he has not yet been destroyed, not until Christ returns. And so we live now in these wilderness years In the realization, and we need to have this realization, that it will be tough. (laughs) The, The devil's rage is being focused at us. It will not be easy for us to be Christians. And it's not, is it? Professionally, it's hard for us to be Christians. Socially, it's difficult to talk about things of faith and things about what you believe. We shouldn't be surprised guys when we read and hear about the fact the church is being persecuted for doing good. Across the world we see churches reaching out with hope and goodness and yet they're being destroyed all around the place. To use the language from John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. We need to take the devil seriously, to take the dragon seriously. But we must never lose sight of the fact that he is a defeated foe. The lamb has won, the work of the cross has completed it all. And one day Christ will return in chapter 20 of Revelation, we read about it, to destroy the the dragon finally. But the question that's on our lips now is, how do we stand firm in the meantime? How, as a bunch of believers here in Cardiff, will we resist the attacks of the devil? Will we resist the rage of the dragon? Well, John unpacks it for us in verse 11 and gives us these three weapons by which we have a fighting chance against the dragon. The first, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. Constantly, we will have friends, those whispers of deceit. Those accusations put, put at us, both by people, by ourselves, by the devil, they will come. These accusations, you're not good enough. There's nothing you could do. Or, more risky maybe, or you're perfect. You don't need this stuff. The accusations will come. But what are we going to do with them? Will we take them to the cross? Will we go to the cross with them and rely and depend wholly on the blood of the Lamb? You're absolutely right, I'm not good enough, but you know what Jesus is? Jesus is, and he chose to rescue me. Will we take those whispers of guilt and put them at the cross and say, I'm sorry, Lord, for having these things, for falling in temptation to this again? Will we rely and depend totally on the blood of the lamb? Friends, it's the only thing that matters. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. First first weapon is to rely wholly on the blood of the lamb. Second is by the words of their testimony. The church perseveres in light of the the attacks of the devil by the word of their testimony. I mean, this doesn't mean that we walk around and tell everyone uh, how we became a Christian. I don't think that's what this means. But actually, our lives should bear witness to the fact that we are saved. Our lives should reflect that. The words that come out of our mouths, the decisions we make, the way we treat people, our comings and goings, every single area of our lives, do they bear witness to the reality that Jesus has won? That the the blood of the Lamb has washed us clean? And the final way that John gives us uh, to stand firm against the devil, he says it there in verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Guys, I'm putting this down as by standing firm, whatever the consequences. Are we willing to stand firm because our eyes are fixed so firmly on the cross? we know that the outcome is secure no matter what happens in the meantime we know that the outcome is secure i don't think there's any better uh summary of this than what paul said in those verses again in in romans chapter 8 who then is the one who condemns no one christ jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of god and is interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of christ shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, said Paul, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Friends, will we stand firm this week? Will we trust and depend wholly and only on the blood of the Lamb? And will we bear witness to the work of Christ in our lives? I pray that for us this morning. Uh, so let me pray as we finish. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much um, for this book of Revelation. Thank you, um, Lord, that you draw back uh the curtain, and reveal to us things that, Lord, we don't really understand. Um, We don't understand fully. But, Lord, we thank you so much that uh, you give us just a little glimpse of who you are and what you've been doing for us. We thank you so much for the cross. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and the fact that he hung there for us. Lord, I just pray that this would be real for us. I pray that we would depend on it, that we would wholly trust in it, and that it would reflect and change us as we live here, as your people in the wilderness now. Thank you, Lord, that you have your hand upon us as we do. And I pray you'll keep us as a church. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.